to have your information in like a really hardcore neo-Nazi forum where people are talking about blowing up a government buildings. It doesn't make you feel too comfortable. Welcome to Media Minded, the podcast that helps you tell facts from fiction. Produced by Shoutout UK, the UK's leading political and media literacy education platform in association with ACT, the Association for Citizenship Teaching. This podcast is made possible thanks to the kind support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London and the Global Engagement Center at the US State Department. I am your host, Matteo Bergamini, and I am here today with Holger Ronima. He's a journalist from Estonia. Uh, he works at Delphi Estonia and is the regional editor of OCCRP. Welcome, Helga. Thank you for joining me. Tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, thank you, Matteo. It's uh, very nice to, to be invited to this uh, podcast. Uh, yes, uh, I run a small investigative team of uh, three people. Uh, we publish mainly in Estonia on Delphi, which is the largest uh, news site, online news site uh, in the country. But we also publish our stories on uh, uh, some uh, weekly papers, on a daily paper, which are also owned by the same uh, media company. Uh, we've done a lot of investigations into money laundering, cor- uh, corruption, uh, but also a lot into misinformation and disinformation and propaganda, especially that which is coming from uh, Russia and is targeting uh, Estonia, Estonian uh, people. So that's the things that we've been uh, doing. And over the past uh, couple of months, uh, we've quite extensively uh, worked on also debunking uh, disinformation regarding uh, COVID, COVID-19. And we became fact checkers at uh, Facebook as well. Wow, a lot, a lot to talk about. Uh, let's start with the um, the last one you mentioned. So, w- w- how did you guys become the fact checkers for Facebook? How did that come about? Yeah, as I mentioned, that uh, we have been working quite a lot on, uh, on especially on disinformation and debunking stuff. Uh, so that was kind of like a logical step that uh, we became partners with Facebook. Uh, Facebook has been uh, extending their fact-checking uh, partnership network across the world. I believe it now includes like tens of countries. Uh, and I'm very happy that uh, it happened exactly now because uh, during the coronavirus time, we can see how much of uh, false claims uh, there are on Facebook uh, and other social media sites as well. And of course, at that time, we see that people are uh, a bit more susceptible to all kinds of claims, paranoia theories, conspiracy theories, uh, and they just might uh, start believing or might even uh, take some actions uh, because of uh, stuff spread on Facebook that doesn't have anything to do with truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and we've 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 seen quite a bit of that in the UK. Um, not to beat an old horse, because I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but um, you know, people have been burning down uh, phone masts because of the they they believe that obviously five G is linked to linked to coronavirus, which of course it is not. Uh, we spoke to another um, journalist in Cyprus where the same things happened in that country. Um, and yeah, people take action based off of, of misinformation. They see. Yeah, but uh, the 5G thing is quite interesting because that was one of the theories, conspiracy theories that was spreading very quickly here in Estonia as well a couple of uh, weeks ago. 
but the truth is that in Estonia we still don't have 5G networks. <laughs> the mobile operators are only setting up their first uh, test networks. The government hasn't even issued the, the frequency rights yet to, to the telcos. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the same thing. The same thing was with the uh, with the journalist from from Cyprus. And if you want to listen to that podcast, then uh, then feel free to to get that that quite funny story. Um, but you mentioned obviously when when you started to um, fact check with Facebook, it opened yourself and your team up to to all of these um, misinformations and so forth that were coming up on the network. I mean, is it as bad as we kind of think it is? Like, how much misinformation are you coming across? Um, through through fact checking for, yeah. for the platform, uh, we definitely uh, started at the time when we also noticed like a surge of uh, of content uh, on Facebook that uh, that seemed uh, fraudulent for for some reasons. Uh, that's uh, why I'm very happy to that we started doing it like just a month ago when, when it was a peak time because we had been following uh, things on uh, Facebook, of course, uh, through special tools uh, for a longer time already. So we knew uh, the pages, uh, the groups, uh, the people who 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 were spreading it the most. So we, we kind of right, knew right away where to start uh, digging and then where to start working. Uh, and yes, I guess that the, the most important... Uh, themes were the same as you as you mentioned uh, 5g there were some theories about uh, the coronavirus uh, not existing at all that it's uh, only a created hype by the governments there were some theories about uh, how uh, nato nato uses the virus uh, as a cover to start a new uh, world order and then conquer Estonia and stuff like that, which are totally, totally ridiculous. And then there are some uh, some some other theories that uh, that are not so ridiculous, uh, because when you're talking about five G or, or stuff like that or vaccines, uh, you know that there is a certain group of people who who live in that bubble and then they uh, they read, they spread, and uh, and then they they believe in it. But then, like one thing that that stood out for, from my point of view, and, and which uh, deserved attention, was a rumor that started uh, spreading very quick. Uh, that was right in the early days of uh, of the epidemic here in uh, in the second half of uh, March, I think. And the rumor said that uh, the government uh, was going to put Tallinn, the capital city of Estonia, into a lockdown. That allegedly people wouldn't have been allowed to leave the, leave the city. Uh, to other towns, uh, people living outside wouldn't be able to, to get in. Uh, and there were supposed to be checkpoints uh, on the border of Tallinn uh, to, to control everything, what's happening inside. And this rumor appeared very suddenly, and it didn't uh, spread through on, on social media as such, but rather in text messages and then chat apps, uh, like WhatsApp and Facebook chat, of course. And that made it really hard to trace for us. What we did is that uh, we made a public uh, shout out and encouraged people to send us uh, examples of, uh, of such uh, messages, like simple screenshots, uh, how they were being told by who uh, that uh, Tallinn is going to be on a lockdown. And we were not able to trace the exact person or place where it started from eventually. But we did. But we do know now that it did start from small-time gossip and speculation between some members of a defense league. And I be believe that this, uh, this sort of uh, rumor, which uh, was a classic example of, uh, of uh, misinformation, is particularly harmful because the general society is so much more susceptible to it. And it was just uh, 
causing more panic in the early days of uh, of a pandemic. Yeah. Mm. And that's and that's and that's the the power of of misinformation and these rumors, isn't it? Because during a time of crisis and during a time of panic, when information is scarce, good information, fact-based information is scarce, and people are still trying to figure out what's going on, how governments are reacting, etc. The, these information, these misinformation can really spread like wildfire, especially when people's uh, emotions are running high. They're not being as critical as they normally would be. So even ordinary people can potentially get caught out by 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 this stuff. And and you mentioned that you managed to track down what you feel like is the original source of these rumors. Like how easy is it to to track down where where a lot of this misinformation comes from? Like, is there a particular point, or is it sort of very varied as to as to the source of where it comes from. It's a lot of uh, a lot of very uh, tiring like work. You go hand one by one. You go through every text message that that you that you receive. You check who has been the author of it. You, you can you will try to build like a timeline to go further and further and further uh, to uh, away to see where it actually started from. And then you can also see how much it started, how many variations or mutations uh, started to, to appear. That in some text messages, people are, were saying that, oh, my mom told me she works at the president's office in Estonia. And the other said that, no, this information comes from a close source to, to the government. Uh, this information comes from uh, the secret service of, uh, of, of Estonia. Uh, and in some cases, they were referring to uh, good journalists they know in Delphi or, or some other publications in Estonia. So somehow people started adding themselves more like proofs to, to the gossip uh, because they wanted uh, the people they sent the messages out to, to, to believe them more. And that made it especially hard to, to trace because the mutations were, were so many. Mm. It's kind of like a, I don't know if you ever played the game, but you know Chinese Whispers? Uh, no, not really. What is it? Okay, so it's a game that um, I used to play and we played as kids where you, you know have, have 10 people or, or 10 kids or whatever and one kid on one end of the line would uh, tell a fact or, or tell something about themselves and then the information had to get passed down by 10 people and it's always quite funny to see that the 10th person has a completely different story to one of the original oh, yeah, person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In Estonia, it's not called the Chinese whisper, but uh, the tel telephone game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the same sort of concept, uh, but the digital version, um, which is which is really quite quite interesting. Um, and um, you you mentioned um, earlier that you talked about uh, misinformation, investigating misinformation that comes out of Russia, and this is something that I've I've always been quite curious about because. You know, Russia has been suggested or floated around several times that it's, you know, a lot of this misinformation or disinformation rather in this case has been propagated from the country or whatever else. And there's always been so semi-factual evidence coming out of it. Like how how true is it and how much influence does, does Russia misinformation or disinformation have in, 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 in Estonia, do you think? And obviously, for those of you who don't know, Estonia is incredibly close to, to Russia and has been dealing with, with um, some issues of Russia for some time. Oh, uh, we can create another different episode about it. <laughs> <laughs> because the effect of uh, Russian propaganda and disinformation campaigns in, in Estonia, that's, uh, that's quite large. Because an important thing that you, you need to be aware of is that, let's say, roughly 30% of Estonian population is, uh, are uh, Russian people uh, who speak uh, Russian language. 
so people in in the Russian community are again like much more susceptible uh, to the propaganda. And there are like so many different layers of, of Russian propaganda. Uh, one which is aimed uh, to to people living in Russia, Russian popula population itself. And that regards like uh, also Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, the Baltic countries. Because uh, sometimes we can see uh, that the Russian ruling uh, Kremlin regime wants to depict uh, the Baltic countries as uh, failed states uh, with uh, failing liberal values. Uh, they want to show that uh, we are very lax, that our like, uh, services are taking away children and then they're giving, selling them or giving them away to Norway or, or whatever. Uh, because they because they just want uh, their own population in Russia to to believe that uh, these Western freedoms, these liberal values, uh, they are failed. That uh, it's better to live here in the secure, nice, traditional value Russia. Uh, and of course, like all of these things that they are uh, spreading in in Russia, but mostly it's not accurate. Then the second layer. Uh, can be targeted to people, uh, to the same uh, Russian people living in Estonia, because a lot of them do consume uh, Russian state TV channels as uh, the source of their everyday information. Uh, and they don't consume too much of like Estonian language uh, media in Estonia, because uh, many of them still don't, uh, don't speak the, the local language. And then uh, there are also attempts uh, to, to influence uh, Western countries, Western governments, Western, Western activists uh, to believe that uh, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania are like these small Nazi states uh, uh, who are uh, uh, acting bad against the local Russian minorities uh, and such. So they work in very many different uh, layers. Uh, it's, it's very complicated. Uh, two years ago, we did uh, a very cool investigation, one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of uh, in, in my career, but we managed to prove how uh, Russian government uh, was secretly financing uh, local Baltic, uh, seemingly independent uh, news sites. Uh, we got our hands on uh, their secret contracts. We were uh, funneled money through offshores in uh, Cyprus, uh, Serbia, and, and uh, Holland, Netherlands. Uh, the Estonian uh, the Baltic uh, editorial offices uh, needed to get approval for the headlines. Uh, they were uh, uh, they were sending out reports of their progress every month for back to back to Moscow. Uh, and that's so on. They even uh, received a direct task that today you need to cover such topic, such topic, such topic. Uh, it was like really thorough and method method methodological work that we were doing. Methodical, yeah. Methodical, sorry. That's a complicated, <laughs> no complicated word. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, but that, that's it. That's incredible. Uh, absolutely incredible. And how did you, obviously, um, bearing in mind saying what you can say and protecting sources and all that, but how did you go about that investigation? Like, did it, did, did you come across the initial hunch by accident? Like how, what, what, what made you launch that, that investigation? Yeah, it wasn't exactly an accident, but uh, it's one of these cases where you don't need to be afraid of naming your sources because the sources were all basically public. Uh, the guy responsible for uh, for setting up the system in Estonia, but also Latvia and uh, Lithuania, his name was Alexander Kornilov. Uh, 
he got under investigation in Estonia because he had uh, been dealing with tax evasion. He had uh, taken out some of the money that he received from Kremlin uh, to his NGO uh, in Estonia, and he had just taken it out in cash, I, I think. Uh, and that sparked like the attention of a local uh, tax authority in Estonia. When the tax authority started asking him questions, he went on to, to forge documents to, to show that uh, the money he took out was actually a loan given to someone. And because he forged the, the loan contracts, uh, the Estonian state uh, launched a criminal investigation into him. And then they went on and seized the computers and, and so on. So what I did, where I got the information, is that when the tax case, sorry, the fraud case was over, forging documents case was over, uh, then I just went to the court uh, to read the, the materials in the, in the court uh, files. And I discovered like uh, several CDs uh, with uh, data that they had obtained from his computers. And that was like this uh, treasure trove. <laughs> I had never seen anything like that. Like thousands of pages of uh, Skype chat history. <laughs> and all it's the like contracts. Christmas came early. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Christmas came early, but it also took like... I think two months of quite intensive work to 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 start to understand everything. That's amazing. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. Um, and from there, I'm guessing it kind of just spiraled, and you just followed the the rabbit hole going down. With investigation of that, like with with that, it was as you said that it was a it was essentially Russian government or organizations within Russia funding um, seemingly independent organizations that would then sort of share messages or whatever else um to try and obviously influence people i.e disinformation um what's what's the this may seem like a stupid question but what's the what's the logic behind it all is it influencing government like uh, is it influencing policy or no i think it's uh they were trying to influence mostly the local Russian minorities in the countries um uh, and if you leave an impression that the news site uh, is independent, then again, like people are more prone uh, to believe and trust uh, what they are reading and then seeing from, uh, from these sites. Uh, it all led back to Russia Sevoidnia, which is one of the largest uh, media, Russian state-owned media holding companies in, uh, in Moscow. And at the same time, Russia Sevoidnia is also... Uh, publishing uh, Sputnik, which also had its uh, office in Estonia. So we had like openly uh, Kremlin-run Sputnik, and then uh, covertly Kremlin-run uh, this Balt News, that's the name of, uh, of the seemingly independent site. So you were kind of like working on uh, two, dif working two different tools at the same time. So you could cover more, more, uh, more with uh, two wow. separate tools. And what happened to that news site when it when when all of this blew up? I mean, is it still running? Is it has it does it have to announce where its funding comes from, or or has it been shut down? So I think like uh, one or two days before we published the, the investigation, we we added a small uh, footer uh, on their website saying that it is actually part of the Ria Novosti network and so on, so on. It's still running. Uh, I think they have now a new team. Uh, which produces uh, content uh, straight from Russia. Uh, and it's fine by me, they can be running, but uh, now at least we know for sure as a fact, uh, and we know who they are. So they, they can't be deceiving people like that. Mm -hmm. No, of course, of course. Um, with, because obviously, I mean, putting a small footer, I mean, it's 
realistically, how many people are actually going to see on the small footer or, or go and on go on to that small footer? I mean, what do you think should happen to websites that are sponsored by external state actors? So, so in this case, this website. I mean, should it be a, a much more um, clear disclaimer, or, or is a footer enough? Yeah. I've... To start with, I'm not a true believer in like uh, shutting them down. I know some countries uh, have doing it, uh, such as uh, Latvia and Lithuania at, at some stages. Uh, Estonia so far exactly hasn't been uh, uh, like banning them to be aired or, or so on. Uh, as long as it's uh, as it's not like so openly or directly hostile or, or provocative. Uh, if you can see where, if if you will start seeing where, like shoutouts uh, to I don't know, come to the streets and uh, start riots or whatever, then of course it's uh, it, it can be a different deal. Uh, but I believe that the most important thing, on one hand, uh, is like acknowledging that they are government-run or like state-run uh, organizations. We can't call them uh, journalism or, or news sites because we are not doing news. We are carrying out another country's foreign uh, foreign policy goals or aims. So we're not uh, journalism. We can't call them uh, journalistic sites. Uh, that's uh, that's one thing. And on the other hand, what we need to do is we need to create. Uh, a, a truly and really independent, uh, good local uh, Russian language uh, news media uh, that would be trustworthy and that would actually uh, have a have a better reach uh, in the Russian community here. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's, I guess, the um, kind of leads me on beautifully to uh, to my next point about the the role of the media because I think you've, you've highlighted it beautifully that in a place like Estonia, where you know if there is a lacking of good fact-based media um, of a specific language or of a specific culture, then again, misinformation and other actors, they could be state actors, they could be anywhere else, could um, influence that and could could fill that void almost. Um, so how, do you, how important do you think is the role of good independent fact-based journalism? Not just obviously of a, of a Russian language in, in, in the case of Estonia, but just in general. I think that... Uh, that importance can't be like understated uh, because yeah it, I, I, I truly I'm a fan of uh, Washington Post's slogan that uh, democracy dies in, in darkness and I really believe that it does die in darkness and, <laughs> and in order not to have that darkness the only guarantee uh, that you can have is a truly independent uh, media uh, which uh, acts in a responsible way, which follows uh, journalistic standards, and which also has a freedom uh, to work. Uh, so that's something. Uh, that's the only thing that the government can do is like create that framework that uh, independent media uh, can uh, can do their work, and then let them do it. Uh, that's uh, that's what we should be seeing. Uh, true. True. Definitely. Um, and I think democracy very much dies in dies in darkness. I think it's the journalism and and the ability to get the right information, which can then positively impact the way you vote in in whatever way. I think is is fundamental to democracy. Um, but with growing distrust in 
media and journalism. I mean, one thing that we're seeing in the UK is a growing distrust in what people could perceive as the mainstream press, whatever that means. Um, I'm kind of curious: is is Estonia going from a going for a same phenomenon? Has has did the recent pandemic change that at all? Like, what's the current state of play with with regards to um, trust? Yes. Uh... Uh, I think we, we, we can definitely see the same uh, trends in Estonia that uh, the trust level uh, in, uh, in media is, is not that high. It hasn't been that high for, for several years now. And of course, there are several reasons for that. Uh, that part of it surely has to do with the media itself, especially when the media wasn't uh, able to adjust uh, to, to, to the new digital world like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, the same like uh, high quality, high standard media didn't uh, adjust with it uh, too well. And that created a lot of problems for us with uh, which we are still trying to cope with. But also what we can see is that a, lo a lot of the local populist politicians here in Estonia as well, they are attacking media every day. Uh, they are undermining the trust in us. Uh, Not just in Estonia. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course, because it's common. It's it's common across uh, across Europe, across uh, well the states, and, and and so on. And of course, not to talk in in some countries in, in in some other parts of the world. But that's something that we have to deal with, and we can see here in Estonia as well. We can see like ourselves, like the the, the, the politicians. Uh, and but whatever youth organizations and such like coordinatedly attacking uh, verbally attacking uh, journalists by name like specific journalists and how are you supposed to to continue to feel free and continue working uh, honestly and unbiased in, in that kind of uh, situation that uh, it, it, it creates a lot of uh, problems uh, for us but on the other hand uh, I also like to see something positive in it, and I think that it maybe also helps us to to mobilize ourselves uh, a bit better. That we always need to like kind of walk on the line. That we we always need to remember all the journalistic standards, rules, uh, codes of uh, ethics, and so on. Such as like we need to be fair, uh, no matter what what is being said about us. Uh, maybe uh, we we need not to publish uh, speculation. We need to stick to facts only. We can't take uh, any shortcuts because that will undermine. That will be used again to undermine the same trust which is already, which we already have a very small amount of. And now during the Corona epidemic here in Estonia, we've also noticed how hungry people are for information. In March and April, we were making uh, like huge uh, record numbers of uh, uh, people coming to our sites. Just now, yesterday, no, today morning, I received an overview of uh, the new number of uh, digital subscribers that we have. In April, we made another record in it and, and so on, uh, which means that people are hungry for, for information. And they are coming uh, in record numbers to us. And that maybe gives us a, a good opportunity to kind of uh, regain that trust to start building it. It doesn't happen uh, like from by like by a, by a snap that it, it takes a long time but now is a very good time to uh, if we really focus if we really work hard uh, if we publish only valid information uh, we're being fair uh, maybe we can rebuild slowly that trust level no i agree i, th I think there's there's definitely a silver lining um, in this all and i think the the role of the media has really been been highlighted to get you know fact based information um, and hopefully the media can can use this and journalists can use this time to really regain and rebuild that trust as you say i really hope that's something that's a 
there's a lot of learning curves, I think, uh, during the pandemic. But I think hopefully that's one that will that will stick um, carrying on moving moving forward. Um, and one of the things I wanted to pick up on, because you mentioned bias um, and during, you know, bias of, 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 say, political figures or activists or people on social media. I mean, all human beings have have a bias right everybody has a has has biases it could be something as harmless as uh, music or what country you should travel to i mean if you were to ask me for example what uh countries you should travel to after a long uh and long overdue break for example i will tell you countries that i generally enjoyed and so from that's of course a bias um and that's completely harmless, but there are biases, of course, that um, can become quite harmful when it comes down to sort of race, ethnicity, religion, gender, etc., etc. Um, so we talked about bias in politicians, but of course, all journalists are human beings and they have biases as well. Um, so how do you go as an investigative journalist? And you're obviously you broke that story we talked about earlier, and I'm kind of dying to jump back into that story. Um, but how do you, how did you, for example, in that instance, um, make sure that your bias uh, if you had a bias, didn't didn't com- didn't create a conflict between how you were reporting on that story or how you were going about that um, in that story or just in general in some of your work. I think it's like extremely important to be aware of your biases and acknowledge that that you have them. Uh, once you do that, it is easier to also like zoom out for a bit for a bit of time and consciously analyze if it's possible to ground these uh, biases and then how to how to work around them. Uh, a few years back, I attended a scholarship in the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism in, in Phoenix, USA. And there I had like I had a course uh, there with uh, Walter Robinson, who was the head of the Boston Globe's uh, Spotlight team, uh, one of the most uh, significant investigative journalism teams in uh, journalism history, actually. And he taught us a few good ground rules that I, I think helped me tend with my biases and which I try to follow uh, every day for, for sure. And that some of these uh, rules uh, are such that uh, it's not possible to be objective, but it is possible to be fair. The other side, in whatever issue you are working on investigating, has to have a full say in the story. Uh, the other one goes that it's never about you, uh, or that uh, even kill people with kindness, uh, admit your errors, stay at arm's length of the people you cover and then so on that's that's these are the rules that you need to remember because and if you if you remember them then you can manage your your biases also in this uh, kremlin propaganda story that we talked about uh we did our very best and we were <laughs> so energetically trying to give the other side a fair chance to explain uh, we were calling them, we were emailing them, not once, not just to get the check on some paper, but uh, yes, we tried to contact them, but we didn't want to comment them, and that's it. But we were really trying. Uh, we contacted them on Facebook, on Skype, uh, emails, phone calls, uh, and not just like one day before publishing, but we, we started it like a long time before publishing, actually. So you need to forget about the biases. Did you get a response? Uh, no, not really. The only response we did get was uh, someone who we had like full proof uh, that was actually the contact person in Moscow 
uh, denying that it was him. <laughs> but we have documents proving the other way. But it's not important in the end because we know that uh, we like overextended ourselves in trying to, to get their side of the story because very rarely people, uh, these issues are like black and white. Uh, mostly they have different kinds of shades. And uh, it's also important to admit in the stories that we finally write about the shades and to, to publish about those because uh, we don't make the stories uh, weaker. We don't need to worry about that. We actually make the stories uh, stronger. That's what I what, what I believe. Mm. No, no, definitely, definitely. And you and you remove any doubt within the story because you by putting the other person's point across or, or putting their side of the story, you emphasize to any reader that you tried to give them chance to to explain to maybe justify to to talk about and at least vocalize their their concerns so in the end it makes the story or, or the investigative piece um at least at least in my view a lot more compelling yes we are we're not happy about the stories where the let's say the, the anti-hero of, of a story uh doesn't want to talk with us or, or will not give uh, comments at, at all it, it doesn't make me happy i would be much more happy uh to include uh, uh, include those comments, uh, provided I can ask all my questions uh, and that give, get answers to the questions, not uh, just like uh, some uh, some kind of blabbering uh, answers. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of times uh, these people they choose not to comment at all, and that's not helpful. That's not helpful to them. That's not helpful to me or the reader. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in your investigation of that story, or, or any other investigation, because obviously investigative journalists are. Um, uh, at least caricatured as being, you know, skirting on danger, and you're uh, you're always looking over your shoulder because you don't know who you exposed or whatever else. I mean, I don't know how real that is, um, but have have you ever had any sort of close moments or any sort of conflicts of interest where you're like, do I really want to pursue this story? This seems a bit out of depth. Like how 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 dangerous is this to potentially my my work or my job or, or, my, or my life even like have you have you ever encountered any of those moments in in your career uh, yes we we have encountered uh, some of these incidents uh, of course like i must say that working as a journalist in estonia is very safe uh, we haven't had anything happening to a journalist uh, ever as as long as i remember in the uh, since 1991, when Estonia restored its uh, its independence and broke up uh, broke out from the from the Soviet Union, in many other countries uh, it's much more difficult. We can see how dangerous uh, life for journalists uh, is in um, uh, Belarus, or or even uh, uh, we can see what happened to Jan Kuciak. Or uh, like we have had so many cases. Uh, with journalists being killed or harmed uh, over the last few years, and also in like regular, okay, European countries, so that gives uh, very much crowns of uh, of fear. Like we have we have problems, uh, but in our work, uh, for example, uh, last year, roughly a year ago, uh, together with a colleague, uh, we published. Uh, actually, uh, it was a story about disinformation. We published. Uh, uh, a group of local populist uh, far-right parties uh, youth movement who had created anonymous accounts on uh, Facebook. They were trolling on uh, uh, on uh, well-known politicians' uh, news feeds on Facebook. Uh, one of them had even managed to get opinion uh, op-eds uh, published under fake names uh, 
uh, in a wow. reputable uh, daily paper and, and so on. And uh, we managed to, to uncover that network. And what they started doing is that they uh, started doxing us, which means that they were gathering uh, sensitive information about us. Uh, and even today, there is a thread on one of the international, uh, really hardcore neo-Nazi forums uh, about me and my colleague, about our login information to different social media sites, about our home addresses, uh, my mom's name is listed there, and, and, and so on. And that doesn't make you feel very comfortable. But, uh, but so far, it hasn't uh, stopped us uh, uh, in, in like working on these topics. That's incredible. That's, that's crazy. So you're, you're a docs, which means, you know, releasing private uh, information about yourself so as you, as you say so usernames social media accounts um, uh, home addresses of you and your family relatives I mean I'm, I'm guessing by the sounds of it no one utilized that information for anything malicious or no so far we haven't seen uh, we, what we did see but we, we started seeing uh, notifications from I don't know Twitter Facebook uh, Google uh, that someone uh, tried to reset our passwords. Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they tried to hack into that, or I presume that uh, they used that uh, in order to gain uh, information, more information about uh, what are the exact email addresses, what is, what are the mobile phone numbers connected to it, uh, and then so on. Uh, we didn't detect any like physical threat as such, but uh, a lot of uh, security experts say that uh, doxing uh, can be the first step. Uh, before uh, physical uh, harm and to have your information in like a really hardcore neo-nazi forum where people are talking about uh, blowing up uh, government buildings and stuff like that uh, it doesn't make you feel too comfortable no no of course not of course not <laughs> i mean no it definitely wouldn't for me um jesus how did you and we'll go back to the story in a minute but how did you react to that when you when you heard that your information was on there I mean, obviously, I'm guessing the first thing you did was probably change all your passwords, etc. But um, did you take any other further measures or did, did you contact the police? I mean, is there anything they can do? Or Yeah, the first measure definitely is that luckily uh, we didn't uh, do it at that time. But our procedures uh, demanded it already earlier that uh, always use two-factor authentication <laughs> and then strong passwords that uh, they wouldn't be able to, to hack into it. Uh, that's, that's the first thing that you need to remember in our, in our line of work. But of course, yes, we did let Estonian police know about it. Uh, and we talked with uh, some of the police uh, looking into it, but uh, uh, they didn't have much to, to go on as well because the forum, forum uses only anonymized names and, and you can't trace who is really behind it. So that's something important for a police to remember and then keep in their minds when something else starts happening or other signs uh, turn up, but we didn't have any expectations that they would actually be able to to trace that who exactly was it or, or what was the aim of it. No, no, of course, of course. And with that story, because one of the things that um, fascinates me most about misinformation is, is the spread of, of misinformation and disinformation online. And we've talked already about, you know, state actors sponsoring uh, supposedly independent websites, but... One of the things that I think we've seen in, in recent years, especially across uh, Europe, is is the growing of these sort of far right extremist movements. Um, like when you were when you exposed that story about that network that were utilizing social media to spread disinformation for obviously a political gain, um, how extensive was that network? Like, 
how many did you know how many people were involved is is most of it shut down like how was it just a couple um, of angry people using fake accounts that managed to get published like how how extensive was it yeah you need to remember that Estonia is like a tiny country uh, the entire population is 1.3 million people so it's basically I don't know one of the suburbs of London yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> which means that any number that I tell you you need to multiply with I don't know 60 to get uh, what it would mean in uh, in in the UK for example <laughs> which isn't so going to make me feel any better considering that's <laughs> 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 yeah go ahead yeah, uh, I think in this case uh, we identified uh, maybe 30 to 60 fake accounts. We don't know how many people were behind them, uh, but the fake accounts on uh, on Facebook uh, were in, in, in those numbers. And they were working pretty extensively and they, they had set up their meme factories uh, and it was just like ahead of the national election time as well. That's why, uh, why it was good that we got our hands on it uh, in January and the elections were still like two months away at that time. So I believe that we managed to, to put a stop uh, to it right in time. Not uh, We didn't get too close to the elections yet. Uh, and how did you come across that, that story? Like, what was the process of investigation when you... When you went from getting your initial sort of hunch to to tracking all these accounts down and uh, essentially then exposing the the whole network, yeah, it's one of the most important like detective work, uh, most most interesting, engaging detective work that uh, what we can do in our in our job. But uh, you take them, uh, you start one by one again, going through them. You see when the uh, pages were created. Uh, you see if the names make any sense, if these people uh, have ever posted any uh, real photos uh, showing themselves or not. Uh, you do reverse image search on the photos to see if they have been used in any other context with any other names. Uh, you Google the names these people claim to be. Sometimes they tell you that these people have attended like specific high schools in Estonia. You call the schools, ask if uh, they have any records about uh, uh, about such people. You get no for an answer, and it's another proof. So basically, you build up a list of red flags, uh, and when you have enough of red flags, then it's like, quite fair to say that uh, these accounts uh, have signs of not being like mm -hmm. real people. And then obviously you sort of go from there. I mean, how how much of an impact do you feel um, this this kind of misinformation on, on social media actually has um, during? I mean, obviously this was specifically targeted during a during an election in Estonia. But how much of an impact do you feel like these groups can have? And also, which which for me is is always a, is always a muddle because i mean i'm guessing these people are, pa are are passionate about whatever course they're passionate about but are they funded by anybody like there there must be money being pumped into something like this it sounds like a pretty intense operation and it's not like they can set up a gofundme page or something like that it's not quite <laughs> <laughs> But actually, it doesn't take a lot of money money to do something like that. Even like buying a Facebook ad uh, to boost your, I don't know, memes, uh, ridiculizing uh, whatever, like uh, competing politicians from other parties or such, it may cost cost us uh, as little as, I don't know, 20 to 30 euros uh, for one boost to reach like a really uh, uh, nice audience in, in Estonia. Uh, and if you have like enthusiastic people, even like five or ten people working on it, uh, they can do it out of enthusiasm or or back 
they can be paid. But in our case, we were not able to to prove about uh, uh, about them receiving money or that or, or about it being uh, organized or approved from this with the party headquarter. But the impact, of course, like. Uh, I don't think that the impact is uh, like I don't know two percentage points uh, at at election day. Uh, I don't think it's like that. Uh, but uh, provoc- provocative comments, uh, ridiculizing posts, etc. They still they still create this sentiment uh, around different politicians, uh, and that starts like doing it, its work. It's again like it's not uh, it doesn't happen by the day. But if you allow it to happen for days, weeks, months in a, in a row, then that really cr- can create like a different kind of uh, notion r- r- around uh, specific politicians. Yeah. No, of course, of course. And it, and it can, if left unchecked, as you say, can really skew public debates because then politicians are receiving things on social media which they think the voters may want which in reality is a load of yeah nonsense fake accounts if you if you go if you go to if you follow your local uh, politician who has been elected or is, is running for for somewhere and you see what he posts and you see that there are several people uh, not agreeing with him uh, or are fiercely criticizing him uh, and you don't these people seem legit to you start thinking that yeah but maybe maybe this politician like yeah, maybe he's not worth it. Maybe I shouldn't uh, vote for him. That's that's uh, the easiest way how to explain how it works. No, of course, of course. So what? what one of the, one of the things that consistently comes up is this discussion around um, censorship and um, censoring things around the internet, and it's obviously a massively fierce debate. Um, but as someone that's sort of seen the the kind of worst end of of the kind of freedom of the internet, i.e., being doxxed and having your address and your mum's address and your uh, personal details ending up on these forums. Do you feel like there's a there's an there's an argument there where governments should be able to say block some of these forums or um, have some sort of censorship control over say aspects of what uh, people can see, or or is this a danger? I'm not a fan of uh, any kind of such uh, censorship. Uh, I I don't believe in it. Uh, as long as these sites or people uh, don't incite hatred or or, or violence. Uh, I believe that uh, we have enough uh, tools and methods how to work with such problems uh, already now without uh, censorship. Uh, we can uh, report them to, to the social media platforms. Uh, if we identify who they are, we can, uh, I don't know, sue them for libel or, or whatever. But there, there are many things that we can do. But censorship, uh, especially coming from <laughs> coming from government, uh, where else it should be coming from, it might be only a very short-term uh, solution to the, to the problem, but uh, very soon it will start to be counterproductive. Uh, the problem doesn't go away anywhere. It creates more mistrust. Uh, these people move to new channels, new sites. Uh, they will be out of your site uh, spreading the same things, uh, <coughs> but you are just not, not aware of it. And in general, uh, what is the next uh, step of, uh, of, of what can be censored? That... Uh, I wouldn't want the government to trust uh, which information is in public goods or, or, or not, because I think that's something that uh, the public can, uh, can actually trust. What the government can do, as I said earlier, is like, create a good environment uh, for journalists, for media, for fact-checkers uh, to be able to do their work. No, I, I agree. I agree. Because uh, as, as you say, I mean, these, these kind of discussions, these kind of... Um, 
you know, far right or whatever discussions are still going to happen. They're just going to happen um, closed off in more hidden forums or, or wherever else where you're not going to be aware of them and that can sort of blow up in a variety of different ways. And you're kind of feeding into it, aren't you? Because then they can use that narrative of this is the truth, which is the government trying to silence us, etc., etc. Whereas if if the government don't silence it, then they then they can't use that that um, that tool in their in their arsenal. But obviously, with social media companies and you know Facebook, Twitter, Google, I think they are doing a lot more um, to fact check and and um, try and remove some of this the most damaging content at, at least. Um, but what about forums, and you probably already answered this, but what about forums um, like the one that, that you mentioned that, that your that your details were, um, were, were added on? Because I'm guessing the forum owners, whoever they are, didn't bother removing the content that was put up. Um, so shouldn't there be something to, something to be said around those forums? I mean, yeah. Facebook and so forth take responsibility, but these forums don't. Yeah, so that's something that we, we can have like a discussion about because such forums are clearly used for inciting hatred uh, and violence. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't agree with, uh, with those being set up or, 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 or run. Uh, so that's something I would be, uh, I would ha be happy to see that if, if we witness something like that happening, that they can be, I don't know, blocked or, 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 or uh, banned or, or whatever. I would be willing to, to debate, uh, debate and discuss about that because hatred and violence, uh, we are not the things to, to promote. But isn't that the same argument that you're talking about earlier? Um, where, you know, if you block these, these forums, then these people that populate that forum are just going to set another one up. So the government's almost consistent, consistently playing catch up because it's not easy. It's not hard to set up these forums. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, maybe I am maybe talking a little bit like against what I said earlier, but when you force them to move somewhere uh, where they are less public, uh, the theory or the probabilities uh, that uh, the bubble, their bubble will be smaller, where, but uh, they will not get the exact same, uh, the same number of uh, followers or, or audience. Where. So if you force them to go into a deeper and deeper and deeper corner, uh, then probably the audience who is, uh, uh, who is receiving their messages will be sm less yeah. smaller. No, I think, I think there's definitely an argument there, in it. and it's, it's an interesting one, because censorship is, is often quite a very touchy subject, especially in, in democracy, where the balance of power is very, very delicate, and, um, you know, the mix between freedom of speech and hate speech, the lines often blur, um, some people view it differently, depending on what their interests are, and it's, it's a very, very hard debate, but I think it's a debate that we as a society in general, uh, in, in democratic societies, I think, are going to need to have a have a conversation about because it's something that is um, potentially becoming an issue. Um, but I agree with you. I think the the answer isn't in censorship, isn't in government control. The answer is in, uh, you say media, I say media and education. Because if you have media literacy... Yeah, definitely. Media, media, literacy, media literacy is a very, uh, very important uh, uh, part of a solution. Uh, constant, uh, methodical... See, I, I knew how to say that <laughs> <word> now. <laughs> Uh, media literacy programs, uh, starting from uh, uh, from early grades in in the school already, but also media literacy programs for grown-ups, because a lot of times uh, we can see that uh, uh, some grown-ups uh, are much less media literate than actually their children growing up. Yeah, and that's a really interesting interesting point because obviously 
me and and, and shout out UK as an organization and there's many others um, across across the world that do media literacy run media literacy programs for um, for young people um, and there's a massive I think need for that which we've already touched on but I think you're right there's a massive need for media literacy for for adults and, and grown-ups because quite often and, and this is just sort of my own personal opinion but I find young people because they've grown up with technology are automatically a little bit more skeptical than older generations because they know how easy it is to you know doctor an image um some of them do it for their instagram you know <laughs> it's it's something that they they are a little bit more tech savvy which i wouldn't say it makes them media literate i don't think it's the same thing but it just makes them a little bit more skeptical than older generations who didn't grow up with the internet didn't grow up with technology and therefore they don't know how easy it is to um, falsify something or, or manipulate something online or you know how easy it is to pay $50 and create a website that looks as beautiful as the BBC's for example like it's a lot of this stuff isn't hard anymore to do but I think young people know this older people don't and I think there is a again neither of them that doesn't change the need for media literacy but I think it just makes them a little bit I don't know if you, you agree but it makes them a little bit more skeptical yes yeah, so I think the, the nuances are just like a little bit different but uh, yes young people know what's around them uh, the trick with media literacy is, is just like uh, to put uh, to give them a good context about it and to make them interested uh, about actually caring <laughs> to make them <laughs> to make them interested to care about <laughs> uh, about what's happening around them uh, but with uh, some of the, the older generations, uh, you have to start with uh, more about uh, the entire essence and, and the logic of uh, information on internet. Uh, they are much more vulnerable to different frauds also happening on uh, on internet, uh, investment scams, uh, and, and so on. So the, the methods that you use when talking and, and uh, teaching media literacy uh, they need to be a little bit different. Mm. Yeah, no, completely agree. And actually, we um, we have launched a um, an adult uh, version of our media literacy program. And what's interesting is that I mean, it's 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 kind of like a uh, collaborative learning process. So the uh, the parents help their young people at the same time learn skills themselves. And I think that's a quite a positive way of doing it because you know the young people are learning about it through school taking those um that those tools and information home and then passing it on to young people so it's like a reverse learning thing whilst the young, whilst the older person's helping them helping them with that with that process in school uh, but you're right i think it's, it's two different um ways of dealing with it um and and by no means do i think that young people aren't that don't need media literacy i think they definitely do um but i think older people need it in a slightly different way um and and I agree. I think with the, the whole the whole process, the way of dealing with this issue is very much um, personal responsibility. I think people need to be personally responsible for the information they share or don't share, um, and they need to be personal personally responsible to making sure that they are critical, uh, not cynical, but critical when engaging with with all all forms of information online. So, what what kind of um, tips just just in your own work as an investigative journalist? Like what kind of tips or suggestions can you give to people to help them improve their uh, Online etiquette, shall we say? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> first of, <laughs> first rule or tip would be like don't don't always uh, trust the headline, and don't make judgment uh, judgments uh, based only by the headline that you see. Read further. Uh, a lot of times, uh, headlines can be clickbaity or or not give definitely. Uh, 10 word headline if it has 10 words that's a lot and a 10 10 word headline can give you 
the entire essence of a, I don't know, 500 word article. Uh, so that's the first trick, uh, tip. The second tip, uh, don't share something that you haven't read fully. Uh, don't share anything that you just see the same uh, headline or, or photo. Uh, see who is the author, who or what is the author of a post, article, uh, link. Uh, Facebook gives you the small I letter that you can click on the, on the link. It, it gives you uh, background about the publication that has posted it. Like, does it uh, look uh, trustworthy? Uh, if it's not trustworthy, wh wh why is it not trustworthy? If you don't get any results, just Google the, Google the name uh, of a site or the author and say if it turns up in uh, conspiracy sites or in, uh, in trustworthy media sites, uh, such as, I don't know, BBC or New York Times or, or whatever uh, sites in, in, in other countries. Uh, and then I think these are the basic things that, uh, that you need to follow. Most important is uh, not to share in anything that you are not confident about. Uh, because by doing this and by sharing, you will just like... Uh, tweak the algorithm a bit and uh, the news, the post will spread much more than just only to your uh, to the audience that, uh, that follows, follows you. Mm. No, completely. And obviously, if you share, um, if you share that story, if you share that, um, you know, article or meme or whatever that you see on social media, you're, um, you're telling the algorithm that that is a, a bit of information worth sharing. So it starts to pop up on people's feeds more often. Yeah. And uh, also, like another tip is, is to search the information on uh, fact-checking sites. Uh, if you happen on something, let's say, about a ridiculous example already, but uh, 5G and coronavirus, <laughs> see if any of the fact-checking sites have debunked it or, or, or maybe confirmed it. You can see like Snopes or uh, Full Fact uh, or <laughs> whatever sites, uh, fact-checking sites you have, and odds are good that uh, they have done something about it. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And and one one final point because obviously social media like open social media networks like Facebook, Instagram, etc are are one thing and I think they're doing more and I think being critical and uh, using the little eye next to the um next to the article, you know, hovering your mouse over that can give you a lot of information on on the publication. Um but what about things like closed social media networks like WhatsApp or Telegram um, because there's been a lot of misinformation being shared or disinformation being shared on those sites and quite often it's impossible to track who the who the the author is it's impossible to see uh, to do any real verification um maybe you can do Google image uh, Google uh, reverse Google image search sorry um but it's quite hard, especially if it comes from a trusted friend or or, or someone like that or a trusted colleague maybe um what I don't know if you've received them yourself personally, but what would you? How, how would you handle those? Because closed social media networks are something that is often not talked about, probably because it's, it's so hidden from from public view. Whereas you know, if you put a post on Facebook, every one of your uh, I use the word friends very loosely because who has a thousand friends? But um, but you know, people that are connected to you on Facebook will be able to see, and someone might point out that that's misinformation. But if it's a closed network between you know friends or, or work colleagues, sometimes it's quite hard, especially if you trust the person for other reasons to then also maybe distrust them for this or be critical around this. Yeah, uh, closed uh, messaging apps and so social media sites were a, were a real nuisance uh, because we're virtually impossible to follow uh, for fact-checkers and uh, debunkers. Uh, 
<laughs> and we don't know yep. what's happening there. We're like uh, the perfect, uh, the perfect environment uh, to to spread uh, disinformation. So, first of all, uh, choose very carefully which groups you join on. I don't know WhatsApp or or Telegram. Uh, really, you need to be confirmed that uh, you need to be confident that uh, uh, they are trustworthy groups. Uh, and second of all, like the most logical thing that you can do is that uh, retain critical thinking. Uh, don't take everything uh, that is presented to you as like the pure gold value. Uh, again, think critically. Ask uh, what am I seeing? Is there something which might be off with what I am seeing? How can I check it? Can I Google it? Uh, and, uh, and, and and so on. But uh, I think if you stop. Uh, for one minute uh, and think about it, but already like uh, filters out uh, a lot uh, of uh, strange uh, fake stuff uh, that might be presented to you. That's the first uh, shield of defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. And also being critical, I think, in in the people you connect with, I think is important because, um, you know, if you trust your accountant to deal with your uh, affairs does not necessarily mean that they're also a doctor. So when they're sending you information about coronavirus, maybe take it with a pinch of salt. Or if you have a tutor who is teaching you, say, uh, geography, does not also mean that they are necessarily an expert or, or a doctor on, on the current pandemic. Uh, so it's always worth being critical, which is which is hard, actually, to think about it. Because if you if you trust you know someone uh, for other reasons or for, or for other aspects, it's hard to be to be critical um, when you're receiving information. Yeah, because I, I, I basically fell for it myself uh, in the early days again of, uh, of the coronavirus uh, epidemic, uh, when someone who I hugely trust uh, was uh, sharing uh, this email about uh, how to detect at home uh, if you have a virus or not, <laughs> if you <laughs> hold your breath for 10 seconds and, and if you don't start, start coughing when you are okay or drink water every 15 minutes or stuff like that, uh, which is complete bullshit. No, 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 sorry. it's fine. I mean, it is very much so. <laughs> but because, but because, it was, because it was sent to me by someone who I really trust, uh, I almost fell for it and was almost uh, forwarding to, to some of the people uh, who I knew, even though the original email yeah, they referred to some like anonymous Stanford hospital uh, doctors. And then uh, in another version, we saw that it's like a Taiwan, uh, some hospital in Taiwan and so <laughs> on. So <laughs> if you see some like this semi-anonymous uh, claims of uh, who, who are supposed to be the sources, then again, it's one of the red flags. <laughs> yeah, no, completely, completely. I mean, that... That uh, that ten second holding your breath for uh, I fell for that as well <laughs> for the initial <laughs> for the initial yeah yeah, yeah it happens um, I uh, I I got it sent to me and um, I think I was there holding holding my breath with with my girlfriend and sort of thinking how is this even remotely based in science <laughs> um, <laughs> sort of having doubts while I was doing it but um, again in a pandemic or in or in a health scare you know emotions run high um, if you don't have a possibility to test yourself you want um you want to know and and your want to know and that emotional want to have an answer kind of overrides your 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 um 
your, uh, your your logic to say, well, actually, if it was as easy as holding your breath in 10 seconds, why is the government spending money on testing kids? Just walk into a hospital, hold your breath for 10 seconds, and if you can hold your breath for 10 seconds, you're out the door, you're fine. Obviously, that's not how, not what, that's not how it works. Um, that's, that's, that's a very good class of critical thinking that you're giving now. So. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> But, you know, it's people, but again, you know, in that, in that moment, um, because there is that lack of information and that inability to be able to see if you, you have it or you've had it or whatever else, you, you kind of grasp on anything. Um, which, yeah. yeah. And, and remember that uh, in the early days of the crisis, uh, the epidemic, uh, I think that none of the governments uh, had enough tests. They were only selectively testing like high risk risk group uh, people who were feeling ill or, or, mm-hmm. or, or risk groups like uh, medical people, uh, medical personnel uh, or police. Uh, so even if I would have had the symptoms, it would have been impossible for me uh, to go and actually get like a real scientific uh, coronavirus test. So, of, of course. course, now when I think that if I hold my, my breath for, for 10 seconds and I'm not coughing, then I'm okay. So I, I grab the opportunities that are presented to me and they can actually be like very harmful. They're not so innocent as it, uh, as it looks now. You make a judgment by that and then you go out, meet with friends, meet with uh, the older members of your family and unknowingly spread the virus and the effects can be really damaging yeah yeah no of course of course and then and that's the issue and that's i think why um misinformation and disinformation i think spreads best um when there is that lack of or fact-based information and when there's that lack of having that answer immediately and i think this goes back to a previous point that we're talking about around making sure that uh we change our online habits or as i called it earlier online etiquette because we want information yesterday. We want it as soon as it comes out and we want it now. And of course, good journalism, you know, responsible journalism takes time. Good information takes time. Uh, scientists to make discoveries takes incredible amounts of time. And I think in, in the age of fast-paced news and the internet, I think we, we've kind of forgotten that to get proper good factual information, it actually takes takes time yeah and the, and the problem uh, with uh, COVID-19 or, or coronavirus uh, is that even the scientists uh, don't have the answers uh, it's it's so new they don't know how long the these things uh, the virus lasts in different surfaces when they don't know if a mask actually give an effect or not uh, they don't know how it spreads uh, they are like also learning it uh, like every day bit by bit and then sometimes uh, they are like rethinking uh, the original uh, ideas or uh, theories or hypotheses that they had and that also again like, can be used to create this mistrust in the scientific community uh, saying that uh, see today they say a tomorrow they say b they can't be trusted and, and then all of these uh, uh, people and organizations that uh, want to take use of a situation or even earn money they, they see it as like a very good opportunity for them to to come and start spreading the things that they spread yeah no definitely definitely Haga, thank you so much that was amazing um finally where can people follow you follow your work on socials or, or read about your stuff on online okay i think the best way to follow me is on twitter uh, which I use mostly in Estonian language uh, nowadays, but uh, Google Translate works pretty good in uh, <laughs> between Estonian and English. So the handle is uh, Holger underscore R as uh, the first letter of my last name, Ronema. 
Amazing, amazing. Hogar, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Media Minded, the podcast that helps you tell facts from fiction, produced by Shout Out UK and recorded and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. This podcast is made possible thanks to the kind support and sponsorship of the US Embassy in London and the Global Engagement Centre at the US State Department. <laughs>